So let's continue our study in the book of Philippians this morning. And if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 3 as we take a look at verses 12 to chapter 4, verse 1. Now, as you're turning to it, uh, let me begin by telling you about a story that happened to me last Monday, this past Monday. Uh, Last week was a very busy week, uh, exhausted physically and emotionally and spiritually. And uh, Monday, uh, as some of you know, I uh, have responsibilities at the school, uh, teaching a class, and I'd finish my school commitments a bit earlier, uh, finished up the grading um, that is due. Uh, And so after lunch, I I told Cindy, why don't we take the afternoon off? Uh, Let's sneak off to watch a movie before the kids come back from school. Uh, we can do this because I don't have a set day off. And so we decided, uh, I think it's the first time we would go sneak off and watch a movie on a Monday. Uh, we assumed, not having gone to watch a movie on a Monday, that the mall shouldn't be very crowded. Uh, there should be very few people watching uh, on a Monday. They should all be working. Uh, and uh, so we went to SM. Uh, to our surprise, it was packed. When we lined up for the movie ticket, every seat of every movie, of every showtime, was fully booked or fully sold out. I I couldn't believe it. Uh, These were old movies. uh, Nothing new was coming out. And I was uh, able to secure two free uh, seating tickets. As you know, SM is free seating. Knowing that there would be lots of people, based on what the lady told us, uh, we went to the theater earlier than we usually would, 20 minutes before the show started. And when we walked in, the place was already full. The only two seats available seating together were the seats in the very front of the theater, uh, where uh, you would have a next train uh, watching a movie like that for two hours. As I scanned the place, I said, this is very weird. This is, it's not supposed to be like that. And I noticed something. I noticed that everyone in the theater was old. It was full of elderly people. I asked the lady who was uh, managing the theater, is it always this crowded? Why is it so crowded today? She told me, don't you know, it's Monday. Each senior citizen watch a movie for free day in Quezon City. And all the senior citizens, I think, from all of Quezon City is in that mall. Well, we didn't want to strain our necks for two hours, and so uh, we agreed that we wouldn't sit together, and so we would uh, look for some single seats uh, further back. In the darkness of the theater, I found a seat and sat down, and I saw that Cindy was looking for a seat as well. And so I was motioning to her in the darkness, uh, or the dimness of the light there, that there's a seat uh, closer to the front. Just then, the elderly gentleman next to me Uh, asked me a question. He asked me, is that your wife? Uh, I said, yes. And he said, would you like to sit together? I said, yes, but it's okay. You you were here first. And the only seat available is way up there in the front. And he said, no, no no worries. Please, please take the seat. Tell your wife to come so that you can sit together. It's okay. I'll go sit up in the front. I said to him, really, uh, It's no problem. She can find a seat. You were here first. You deserve to sit here. But he got up and he motioned for my wife to come and sit down. And he said, don't you worry. I'm not here to watch the movie. I'm just here to sleep. (laughs) 
Sure enough, all throughout the movie, I heard two things. First of all, I heard coughing. Lots of coughing. I wondered what sickness was going around in that theater. And that's why my voice is what it is today. I'm a bit sick. And the second thing I heard was a lot of snoring. I made a mental note that day. Never go watch movies on a Monday in Quezon City. But as I thought about it, I thought about what this man said, and it kind of percolated in my mind this week. I'm just here to sleep. Here's the man who is a man has the opportunity to watch an amazing movie, an adventure, and he chooses to sleep through the adventure. Then I realize it's indicative of how many of us live our lives, our Christian lives. We have all the excitement and adventure of living an exciting life for Christ, but we're content to simply sleep through it in the dullness of the offerings of this world. I wonder how many of us in our lives simply coast through it because we have no other goal other than to get to heaven. This morning, we want to discover the joy that comes from a heavenly citizenship. And so if you have your Bibles, again, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verses 12, as we study to chapter 4, verse 1, as we continue our series entitled, Life in Color, Living Joyfully in All Circumstances. You see, whether you're 16 or 60, there is no excuse not to live a life that pushes you towards the amazing goal of knowing Christ more. But where does the motivation to accomplish this come from? Let's take a look. Verse 12 to verse 14, Paul writes these words. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I might lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul writes in these verses that even though in the Philippians' eyes, he may be a spiritual giant to them, Paul was still actively pursuing the goal of knowing Christ more. He was pressing on. He was pushing on. As Paul saw himself, he recognized that he was still on a journey towards spiritual maturity. You see, Paul was not satisfied in his spiritual life. He realized that he needed to level up himself. And it should be the case for you and I as well. Your spiritual life must not plateau there must not be a stalemate in your spiritual growth. There must be a divine dissatisfaction, as Warren Worsby calls it, that is essential for spiritual progress. You see, my friends, if you're satisfied with where you are this morning in your spiritual life, then you will not have the motivation to grow spiritually. If you don't have a desire to push forward in spiritual excellence, then you will remain stagnant where you are. For Paul, he realized that, that he himself needed to push towards the goal of knowing Christ more. You see, knowing Christ is a lifelong pursuit. You will never come to me and tell me, Pastor, I know everything about Jesus Christ. 
part of the lifelong pursuit of knowing Christ is every day in awe of what He continues to pour out in our lives by His grace and His mercy. This is the pursuit towards spiritual maturity that we are all to have a part in. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you're wondering, what's the need for me to push on in my spirituality? What's the impetus for me to be more Christ-like? I've been at this church a long time. I know all the Bible stories. I know all the characters of the Bible. What's the push? I think Pastor Tony Evans illustrates this well, the need for spiritual maturity. He paints this picture. He says this, If you see a baby playing in the dirt or in the sand, that baby may be dirty, but you don't make a big deal out of it because you understand that babies do play in the dirt. They they do play in the sand. A baby even tries to eat dirt. Sometimes the baby rolls around and scrubs themselves in the dirt because for the baby, not knowing any better, dirt is but a toy. But if you see a 21-year-old man playing in the dirt, rubbing himself with the dirt, trying to eat the dirt, then you know that something's wrong with this man. The only difference between the two is time. By 21, this man ought to know that dirt is not a toy. My friends, we have too many Christians who have been saved too long and are still playing in the dirt. They play in the dirt and they have fun in the dirt. And you can't come and listen to the Word of God every week, and not realize that the dirt is not what you are supposed to be in. And yet many of us still continue in life playing in the dirt. The Bible tells us through the words of Paul, we are to press on in the goal of knowing Christ more. In fact, in verses 13 to verses 14, Paul compares this pursuit towards Christ-likeness in the process of discipleship to that of a runner in a Greek game. The runner is to press on. and He is to persevere. He is to push through. And you can talk to every, any marathon runner or one who runs a 10K or a 15K. There are moments in their race where their mind tells them to stop. But they themselves have to persevere, to, to push on past the pain. Hang in there. So it is in the Christian life. The journey for a believer is not easy. No one said it ever was. But we are to hang in there. We're to persevere. We're to, we're to press on. And we are challenged to press on because there's a prize to be had. Paul tells us in these verses he would not look in the past. That doesn't mean he doesn't look at the faithfulness of God in the past, but in reference to the preceding context, we talked about this last week. Paul says, I will not focus on my past pedigree, on my past accomplishments, whether they are of a spiritual variety. He will continue to reach forward to what is ahead. It was Paul's goal to completely know Christ. And he would reach that goal when he comes to the end of his life at that finishing line. And he would experience the joy of seeing Jesus Christ face to face. The culmination, the pinnacle, that joyful satisfaction when you get to the end. And you see the one whom you've been longing for. 
And Paul says in verse 14, I press towards the goal. For what? For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's that prize? That prize, I believe, refers to the judgment seat of Christ. The the Bema seat of Christ. For when this life ends, each one of us, each believer, will appear before Christ. And there we will be rewarded by Jesus for our works done on earth for our heavenly eternal rewards. The prize is given to those who have run the race as Paul has, with faithfulness and with perseverance. The prize is given to those who finish well. So don't quit. You don't get the prize of a heavenly reward if you don't complete the race, if you get disqualified, or if you drop out. You will appear before Christ But there's nothing to give you. Paul says, I push on because of the goal of seeing Christ in that great, wonderful day when I will be rewarded by Him. How many of us have as our life's purpose to know Christ more with the motivation that we're living this life for our heavenly, eternal rewards? That's why Paul says to the Philippian Christians, and he says to us as well, press on, persevere. Now, Paul knows that we need some encouragement and motivation. So he writes these words in verses 15 to 16. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. As a spiritual father that he is, and one who genuinely cares for the Philippians' spiritual condition, Paul writes these words to them in verses 15 and 16. Essentially, he says, we're doing this together. Let's do this together. I'm on the very same journey that you are on. This pursuit towards Christ-likeness. Can you imagine what encouragement it must have been to these Philippian Christians that their spiritual father, the one they admired, is also in this journey with them. He calls to them in verse 15, those who are mature, those who have had many years in the faith, Those who know Christ, they are to share in the same ambition. Let us, let us, let us, he says, have the same mindset. We're in this together. This is to be the pursuit of every pastor, every elder, every deacon. This is to be the pursuit of every volunteer, every teacher. This is to be the pursuit, in fact, of all the people of this church. The pursuit towards Christ-likeness as we are doing this together. We have one singular goal in this church, and it is to pursue Christ. That is why the goal of this church is not numeric growth. It never has and it never will be. 
Numeric growth may come secondarily as a sign of God's blessings. But the goal of this church is to help you, where you are, young and old, spiritually mature or immature, level up and move towards spiritual maturity. To take where you are in your situation, whatever it may be, To build an environment and cultivate in your life that desire to look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That's why each program and each activity of this church that we do and that we do not do is filtered and examined through this singular purpose. We ask ourselves, does this activity or program bring the people closer to Jesus Christ. If not, we're just simply running a social organization and there's better things to do with our time. Does what I do with my life bring me closer one step to Jesus and those around me one step closer to Him as well? Paul cheers them on and he says, I'm with you in this. We're doing this together. We should have the same mind, by the same rules, the same ambition. You see, Paul realizes that in any race, the race is long. There are ups and downs. And during those down times, he needs to be the cheerleader. He needs to be the one who cheers them on. We know... The big difference that having someone cheer us on makes. In sports, we call it the home court advantage. What exactly is the home court advantage? In basketball, does the home team have their basketball rim lowered when they play at home? Of course not. That's ridiculous. The home court advantage is the cheering of your home team, your home fan base. And as any person who plays sports in, you know... That you play better when there's someone cheering you on. It, it feels better. You're, 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 you're more motivated to play well. Encouragement makes a whole lot of difference. Motivation can come both positively and negatively based on how that encouragement comes. That's something that I've experienced these past few weeks. If you are desiring to exercise regularly and work out, you need to find someone who can motivate you well and someone who can motivate themselves as they motivate you. My workout partner is my wife, Cindy. Unfortunately, we're not very great at motivating each other. At the beginning of this year, we made it as our goal to go to the gym at least three times a week. But that has never happened. In fact, many a week go by that we never go to the gym. Now, we have an intention. We want to. But this is how our typical conversation goes. It goes something like this when we both get home. She tells me, Steve, we need to exercise. I tell her, yes, we indeed do. She asks me, do you want to go tonight? Okay, I say, well, let's go tonight. My schedule is clear. And then she asks me, how do I feel? I tell her, honey, you know, I'm really tired. It's, it's been a long day, emotionally drained. 
And I ask her, how's your day been? How do you feel? She tells me, well, it's been a long day as well for me, and tutoring the kids and having to work, it's, it's tiring. And I asked her, so do you feel like working out and exercising? She says, not really. And I tell her, yeah, me neither. So I asked her, well, what do you want to do? The schedule's already cleared. And she'll tell me, well, let's go get some milk tea and some snacks. I tell her, oh, that, that sounds wonderful. Great plan. That, that sounds better than exercising. Let's go do it. So sometimes you will see us on Banawi wearing our workout clothes, but we're eating out. That is the power of motivation, the power of influence. Paul is that great motivator. He is pleading with the Philippian Christians, let's do this. We can level up in our spiritual lives. There are others on the journey. You're, you're not alone. Just, just imagine the entire church encouraging one another towards spiritual maturity. Wow. It's going to be exciting. But in this journey, there are some distractions. And in verses 17 to the verses 19, Paul highlights some of these distractions. Look with me. He writes in verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now telling you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame who set their mind on earthly things. In these three verses, Paul warns the Philippian Christians, and us as well, that there are people that exhibit three characteristic and traits that hinder our pursuit towards Christ-likeness. They will be our distraction as we press on in the race towards Christian maturity. That's why Paul writes in verse 17, Follow my example as one who is pressing on towards spiritual maturity. Now, I may come across that Paul is a bit egotistical, but remember, he tells the same thing to the Corinthian, Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He tells them, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul says, let me be your example, because there are enemies of Christ whose lifestyles and ways lead to destruction. Paul is pleading with them. I've told you often, and I do so even now with weeping. They are enemies to the cross. In verse 19, he gives three descriptions of these quote-unquote bad people. The first description of these types of people that become a hindrance in our spiritual journey is that Paul describes these people as having God in their stomach, whose God is their belly. Now, what in the world does that mean? God is their belly. That means these are people who care only about their own physical desires. It's about them and what they find pleasure in. 
is that which is convenient to them. You see, the priority of one's comfort and pleasure will surely prevent any growth in spiritual maturity. Now, the Bible is not saying we cannot have fun. The Bible does not say we cannot enjoy God's blessings. But the words of Paul remind us that when we desire to be more Christ-like, that it will require of us discipline and self-sacrifice. We are not driven by the desires of our belly. We are driven by the priority of the desire we have for God. I don't know why you're at the 11 o'clock service this morning, but I'm glad you're here. At least you made it. But there are a lot of people who just can't get up for church on Sundays. They can't. They will come up and tell me, Pastor, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And that's in the Bible. How many times have we used that as an excuse for why we don't do something we know we're supposed to do? It's a cop-out. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Why is the body weak? Because the body is weak because you stayed up until 2 o'clock the night before to watch a movie. And that's why you can't get up. The body is weak because your social calendar is so full that you don't have time for your spiritual walk. The body is weak because you simply don't want to get up. And you say to yourself, God will understand. He's very compassionate. When you begin to think like that, then God is in your belly. We are called to self-sacrifice. We are called to discipline. It's funny sometimes that people tell me, Pastor, I'll come to church, but can you consider having a, an afternoon service? Three or four in the afternoon. I sleep until noon. It's the only day I have to sleep in. My question to them is, even if we had an afternoon service, would you still come every week? The reality is no. Because we had an afternoon service. It was at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And the very people who said it still did not come. They said, oh, it's too far away. You see, for these type of people, they need church to be right next door to them. And they need church service to start whenever they wake up and get ready. These are all hindrances to us leveling up in our spiritual walk with Christ. Because the pleasure and the convenience of our life takes precedence over that of the things of God. 
The second description of these types of people in verse 19 is those, look what the Bible says, whose glory is in their shame. These are people who pride themselves in things they should be ashamed about. Can you think about people like this? To an extreme example, these are people who brag about how many women they have slept with. How long they've had a mistress and their wife either knows or has not yet found out. They brag about that. These are people who brag about how drunk they get. Or how much liquor they can hold without tipping over. Or how many nights they go out a week partying. These are people who brag about how much money they gamble with. How much they've lost and it hasn't affected them. These are people whose glory is in their shame. Now, I know none of you would ever say that. Let me ask you an honest question. Sometimes in the moments of our weakness, do we actually admire these people? We admire them because they're able to get away with it. We say, wow. I got caught. He didn't. We admire them. Wow, how is he able to make that business deal under the table? We know we're not supposed to admire them, but we do. Admire them all you want. But the Bible says in verse 19 very clearly, the lifestyle that they choose will lead to their destruction. The more you admire them, it may hinder your spiritual growth and perhaps have you disqualified from the race. Be careful about glorifying things that are shameful. The third description of these types of people are those who set their minds on earthly things. These are people who care only about the things of the earth while not thinking about that which is eternal. Now, we don't make a blanket statement here and say, daydream about heaven every moment of your life. Don't care about the things of the earth. We're supposed to care about our earthly responsibilities. We have hobbies. We have talents to attend to. Nothing wrong with that. But the idea of this is those whose focus and trust is on these things. You may tell me, Pastor, I don't trust these things in my life. I have them. Let me ask you this. The gauge of your trust in the heavenly or in the earthly is based on how tightly you hold on to them and your unwillingness to let them go. And for most of us, we say we trust God, but we really trust these material objects because we're not willing to part with them. How many of you, if the call was made to you for the sake of Jesus Christ to sell your car and to begin to commute from this day forward, would do so? Very few. How many of you, for the sake of Jesus Christ, were called to give your money all away to live in poverty, would do so for the sake of Christ? Very few. 
We're still so tightly holding on to these things. How many of you, for the sake of Jesus Christ, if he calls you to leave your job, to go to seminary, to study to become a pastor, would do so? Very few. Our unwillingness to let go of these things, evidenced by how tightly we hold on to them, is a hindrance to our spiritual walk with God. Paul says it very clearly. Those who set their minds on earthly things. What are the distractions of your life that pull you away from Christ? The very essence of persevering, of, of being focused, of pressing on, is to avoid the distractions Ask any athlete who is training what things he or she must avoid to get to the end. And oftentimes the distraction is not the obvious. The obvious distractions can be swatted away. It's the subtlety of small distractions. The diversions we most easily rationalize are often the most dangerous What are the things in your life that you feel are so pressing, so important, things that you just have to do that you don't have time for Christ, to fellowship with Him? In preparation for an upcoming talk I'm going to be giving at a conference, I have been reading some stories of young people who have died. They've died in car accidents. These are stories of 16-year-old and 17-year-olds and 18-year-olds and 19 and, and 20. And you see their picture and they're beautiful and they're handsome and they're smart. And, and, and it's these parents who are writing tributes to these children who are now no longer with them. These stories all run a common thread. They all died while they were driving because they were texting. They texted as they drove, and I know we all do this. But because of the distraction of that phone, they either died or they killed someone else. Now, what I was looking for in these articles was, what is so important that could not wait for you to get to your destination or for you to pull over to the side? What was so important that you're going 80 miles per hour 130 kilometers per hour that you just so had to text your friends or your family that led to your own death or someone else's death. These were the last words of their life on earth. And you know what the important things were? Let's go to the mall. That guy is really cute. Do I look good? What time do you want to meet? Those quote-unquote important messages cost that child his and her life or the life of someone else. We better reassess how important things are in our life. 
in the spiritual context, in how you live your life. What are the things which you have prioritized over God? Is it really that important? Could you skip a birthday party? Could you skip a social obligation? Could you leave a half an hour earlier? Could you put down the phone and talk to your children? Could you put the movie on pause? Could you save the series for the next day? What is it that is so important that it pulls your eyes to something else? It's not the obvious distractions. It's often the subtle ones. Be careful. Paul concludes this chapter in verses 20 to 21. Look with me. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Paul concludes this section by telling the Philippian Christians, hang in there, persevere, because at the end you will receive the prize of heaven. And we are entitled to the prize because of our citizenship in heaven. Let's talk about citizenship first. The people of Philippi were living as colonists, even though their citizenship was that of Rome. And we talked about this in the first sermon of the series, how proud they were of their Roman citizenship. They would boast about it. They wore it with pride. In our context, we are entitled to a heavenly citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. How much do you value that citizenship? Because it took the death of Jesus Christ to secure for you that heavenly citizenship. It was not easy to get. Someone had to die in your place and my place to secure for me that citizenship. But if I were to ask you the question, would you choose between an earthly citizenship or heavenly one based on the way you live your life? Which one do you choose? The sad part is when I look at your life and I look at, look at my life, what many Christians have done is we put the heavenly citizenship passport, if there was one figuratively, in the safe deposit box and we lock it away. And we simply flaunt our earthly one. But you must make a choice. Do you choose an earthly citizenship or a heavenly one? I have dual citizenship. One from America and one from the Philippines. As I've thought about it, if I were to give up one, which one would I give up? Now some of you may say, well, that's an easy one. It's actually not so easy when you think about the tax implications, 
the residency requirements, the work permits, so on and so forth. The ability to own land. Not that I have any, but it's still a factor. Maybe for my children in the future. But here's the point. When push comes to shove, you can hold two, but you got to pick one. Allegiances cannot lie in two places. They must be with one. Where is your citizenship? Do you treasure it? Do you value your heavenly one? For whatever reason, many people prize an American citizenship, maybe because of the opportunity it affords. Living in Texas, a week doesn't go by where I don't hear or read about a story of a pregnant woman from Mexico who's willing to walk hundreds of miles across the Juarez Desert to try to cross into the U.S. Or one who is willing to give up her life savings to pay smugglers to smuggle them across the border. Or one who is willing to die, risk death in a trailer truck under the Texas heat just so they can cross the border and their child will be born in the U.S. and automatically have citizenship. And if you ask every one of these mothers why they do it, they will say, it's for the sake of my child, for the opportunities that child will have. Jesus Christ had to come down from heaven not crossing an imaginary border, crossing into the realm of mankind. And he who knew no sin had to experience all the sins of mankind, past, present, and future, laid upon him to secure for us, to get for us that heavenly citizenship. An agonizing death or for a moment, theologically, one whom he has always been in communion with in the triune Godhead, cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Just so his children can have all the blessings of heaven. And then we take that heavenly citizenship and we put it away never to think about it again until maybe a day before we die. Taking it for granted when Cindy was studying for U.S. citizenship test, she had to study a thick book and had to answer a hundred questions about American history and American civics and government of which survey tells us one half of natural born American citizens would fail that immigration test because they just don't care to know. Taking it for granted. Don't value it. So it is in our spiritual walk as well. We're Christians. We don't need to read the Bible. We don't need to study it. We're Christians. But we don't value our heavenly citizenship. When she was sworn in in a convention center with thousands of people, I looked around and many were crying with tears of joy 
years, journeys, sacrifices, so they can be an American citizen. How many of us hold our heavenly citizenship so valuable that we've even shed a tear over it? How many of you cry about it? How many of you are in awe of what it required our Lord and Savior to secure it for us? What value is it to us? Many of us, unfortunately, sometimes including myself, would trade it in a heartbeat to be accepted by the world. Paul says, in great emphasis, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 21, he even mentions some benefits a new body, a new home, a new purpose, a new life. Spent countless hours talking about the benefits of our citizenship in heaven. But the emphasis is look ahead, look expectantly to the Savior's return. The end is almost there, He's coming soon. Persevere, press on, look towards the prize and the goal. And it's in the joy of a heavenly citizenship that we can push on and persevere to the very end. You see, with benefits comes responsibilities. And the responsibility of a life that has a heavenly citizenship is that we are responsible to pursue spiritual maturity. We are to press on towards Christ's likeness. That is our responsibility. We've gotten the benefits. We know of them. Christ is going to be at the end. He's going to be waiting for us. But we have a responsibility to push ahead to pursue Christ's likeness. So, my friends, persevere. I know the Christian life is hard. The temptations are many. The distractions are even more. Press on towards Christ's likeness. Press on towards Christian maturity because of the joy of a heavenly citizenship. Paul wraps it all up in the first verse of chapter 4. He says these words. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren... My joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Look at those words he uses. Beloved. Long for brethren. My joy, my crown. Here is Paul. Having, in a sense, yelled at them. Push on. Go for it. Press on. Now comes alongside of them. Puts his arm around them. Let's do this. Let's do this together. You are my beloved. You are my joy. You are my crown. Stand fast. It's that compassionate encouragement that we all need. A hand around our shoulder, a pat on the back. Heartfelt encouragement after having been challenged, coming alongside and someone saying, we can do it.
It's all summed up in this verse. Therefore, Paul says, in light of the many people on the same journey as you are on, in light of the distractions I've warned you about, in view of the joy of heavenly citizenship, press on. Hold fast towards Christ-likeness in spiritual maturity. May the encouragement of Paul's letter to the Philippians this morning be an encouragement to each and every one of you this morning to press on towards Christ-likeness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time and I thank you for your word. It's a good reminder even to me, one who has forgotten many a days of the greatness of the citizenship I have. It was not easy to take the life of your son. Help each of us not to take it for granted and in the joy of what it is and the benefits that it entails. Let us live with responsibility in the pursuit of Christ-likeness, the push towards spiritual maturity. May it be, Lord, that you bring this entire church this morning and, and all the other services, that you would work a work of conviction that this church will be known as a church whose singular goal it is to know Christ more. This week, everyone would commit themselves, taking away the distractions, to level up in their spiritual walk with you. Bless your people this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.